Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Happy New Year! Hope 2024 will bring peace, happiness and healing to the world. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Dual antiplatelet treatment up to 72 hours after ischemic stroke. Background. Dual antiplatelet treatment has been shown to lower the risk of recurrent stroke as compared with aspirin alone when treatment is initiated early, less than or equal to 24 hours, after an acute mild stroke. The effect of clopidogrel plus aspirin as compared with aspirin alone administered within 72 hours after the onset of acute cerebral ischemia from atherosclerosis has not been well studied. Methods In 222 hospitals in China, we conducted a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, 2 by 2 factorial trial involving patients with mild ischemic stroke or high-risk transient ischemic attack, TIA, of presumed atherosclerotic cause who had not undergone thrombolysis or thrombectomy. Patients were randomly assigned, in a 1 to 1 ratio, within 72 hours after symptom onset to receive clopidogrel, 300 mg on day 1 and 75 mg daily on days 2 to 90, plus aspirin, 100 to 300 mg on day 1 and 100 mg daily on days 2 to 21, or matching clopidogrel placebo plus aspirin, 100 to 300 mg on day 1, and 100 mg daily on days 2 to 90. There was no interaction between this component of the factorial trial design and a second part that compared immediate with delayed statin treatment, not reported here. The primary efficacy outcome was new stroke, and the primary safety outcome was moderate to severe bleeding, both assessed within 90 days. Results A total of 6,100 patients were enrolled, with 3,050 assigned to each trial group. TIA was the qualifying event for enrollment in 13.1% of the patients. A total of 12.8% of the patients were assigned to a treatment group no more than 24 hours after stroke onset, and 87.2% were assigned after 24 hours and no more than 72 hours after stroke onset. A new stroke occurred in 222 patients, 7.3%, in the clopidogrel aspirin group and in 279, 9.2%, in the aspirin group, hazard ratio, 0.79, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.66 to 0.94, P equals 0.008. Moderate to severe bleeding occurred in 27 patients, 0.9%, in the clopidogrel aspirin group and in 13, 0.4%, in the aspirin group, hazard ratio, 2.08, 95% 2.08, 95% C, 1.07 to 4.04, P equals 0.03. Conclusions Among patients with mild ischemic stroke or high-risk TIA presumed atherosclerotic cause, 
Combined clopidogrel aspirin therapy initiated within 72 hours after stroke onset led to a lower risk of new stroke at 90 days than aspirin therapy alone but was associated with a low but higher risk of moderate to severe bleeding. Nirzavimab for prevention of hospitalizations due to RSV in infants. Background. The safety of the monoclonal antibody nirzavimab and the effect of nirzavimab on hospitalizations for respiratory syncytial virus, RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection when administered in healthy infants are unclear. Methods In a pragmatic trial, we randomly assigned, in a 1 to 1 ratio, infants who were 12 months of age or younger, had been born at a gestational age of at least 29 weeks and were entering their first RSV season in France, Germany, or the United Kingdom to receive either a single intramuscular injection of nirzavimab or standard care, no intervention, before or during the RSV season. The primary endpoint was hospitalization for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection, defined as hospital admission and an RSV-positive test result. A key secondary endpoint was very severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection, defined as hospitalization for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection with an oxygen saturation of less than 90%, and the need for supplemental oxygen. Results A total of 8,058 infants were randomly assigned to receive nirzavimab, 4,037 infants, or standard care, 4,021 infants. 11 infants, 0.3%, in the nirzavimab group and 60, 1.5%, in the standard care group were hospitalized for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection, which corresponded to a nirzavimab efficacy of 83.2%, 95% confidence interval, c, 67.8 to 92.0, p less than 0.001. Very severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection occurred in 5 infants, 0.1%, in the nirzavimab group and in 19, half a percent, in the standard care group, which represented a nirzavimab efficacy of 75.7%, 95% c, 32.8 to 92.9, p equals 0.004. The efficacy of nirzavimab against hospitalization for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection was 89.6%, adjusted 95% c, 58.8 to 98.7. Multiplicity adjusted P less than 0.001 in France, 74.2%, adjusted 95% C, 27.9 to 92.5, multiplicity adjusted P equals 0.006 in Germany, and 83.4%, adjusted 95% C, 34.3 to 97.6, multiplicity adjusted P equals 0.003 in the United Kingdom. Treatment-related adverse events occurred in 86 infants, 2.1%, in the nirzavimab group. Conclusions Nirzavimab protected infants against hospitalization for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection and against very severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection in conditions that approximated real-world settings. Barsantan versus herbicide and in focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Background An unmet need exists for focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, 
FSGS, treatment. In an eight-week, phase two trial, sparsentan, a dual endothelin angiotensin receptor antagonist, reduced proteinuria in patients with FSGS. The efficacy and safety of longer-term treatment with sparsentan for FSGS are unknown. Methods. In this phase three trial, we enrolled patients with FSGS, without known secondary causes, who were 8 to 75 years of age, patients were randomly assigned to receive sparsentan or herbicidin, active control, for 108 weeks. The surrogate efficacy endpoint assessed at the pre-specified interim analysis at 36 weeks was the FSGS partial remission of proteinuria endpoint, defined as a urinary protein to creatinine ratio of less than or equal to 1.5, with protein at creatinine both measured in grams, and a greater than 40% reduction in the ratio from baseline. The primary efficacy endpoint was the estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, slope at the time of the final analysis. The change in EGFR from baseline to four weeks after the end of treatment, week 112, was a secondary endpoint. Safety was also evaluated. Results A total of 371 patients underwent randomization, 184 were assigned to receive sparsentan and 187 to receive herbicidin. At 36 weeks, the percentage of patients with partial remission of proteinuria was 42.0% in the sparsentan group and 26.0% in the herbicidin group, p equals 0.009, a response that was sustained through 108 weeks. At the time of the final analysis at week 108, there were no significant between-group differences in the eat for slope, the between-group difference in total slope, day 1 to week 108, was 0.3 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters of body surface area per year, 95% confidence interval, c, minus 1.7 to 2.4, and the between-group difference in the slope from week 6 to week 108, i.e., chronic slope, was 0.9 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters per year, 95% c, minus 1.3 to 3.0. The mean change in EFR from baseline to week 112 was minus 10.4 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters with sparsentan and minus 12.1 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters with herbicidin difference, 1.8 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters, 95% c, minus 1.4 to 4.9. Sparsentan and herbicidin had similar safety profiles, and the frequency of adverse events was similar in the two groups. Conclusions Among patients with FSGS, there were no significant between-group differences in for slope at 108 weeks, despite a greater reduction in proteinuria with sparsentan than with herbicidin. Restrictive or liberal transfusion strategy in myocardial infarction and anemia. Background A strategy of administering a transfusion only when the hemoglobin level falls below 7 or 8 grams per deciliter has been widely adopted. However, patients with acute myocardial infarction may benefit from a higher hemoglobin level. Methods In this phase 3, interventional trial, we randomly assigned patients with myocardial infarction and a hemoglobin level of less than 10 grams per deciliter to a restrictive transfusion strategy, hemoglobin cutoff for transfusion, 7 or 8 grams per deciliter, or a liberal transfusion strategy, hemoglobin cutoff, less than 10 grams per deciliter. 
the primary outcome was a composite of myocardial infarction or death at 30 days. Results A total of 3,504 patients were included in the primary analysis. The mean, plus or minus, number of red cell units that were transfused was 0.7 plus or minus 1.6 in the restrictive strategy group, and 2.5 plus or minus 2.3 in the liberal strategy group. The mean hemoglobin level was 1.3 to 1.6 grams per deciliter lower in the restrictive strategy group than in the liberal strategy group on days 1 to 3 after randomization. A primary outcome event occurred in 295 of 1749 patients, 16.9%, in the restrictive strategy group and in 255 of 1755 patients, 14.5%, in the liberal strategy group. Risk ratio modeled with multiple imputation for incomplete follow-up, 1.15, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.99 to 1.34, P equals 0.07. Death occurred in 9.9% of the patients with the restrictive strategy and in 8.3% of the patients with a liberal strategy. Risk ratio, 1.19, 95% C, 0.96 to 1.47. Myocardial infarction occurred in 8.5% and 7.2% of the patients, respectively, risk ratio, 1.19, 95% C, 0.94 to 1.49. Conclusions In patients with acute myocardial infarction and anemia, a liberal transfusion strategy did not significantly reduce the risk of recurrent myocardial infarction or death at 30 days. However, potential harms of a restrictive transfusion strategy cannot be excluded. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Changes in hospital adverse events and patient outcomes associated with private equity acquisition. Objective to examine changes in hospital-acquired adverse events and hospitalization outcomes associated with private equity acquisitions of U.S. hospitals. Design, setting, and participants data from 100% Medicare Part A claims for 662095 hospitalizations at 51 private equity-acquired hospitals were compared with data for four 16720 hospitalizations at 259 matched control hospitals, not acquired by private equity for hospital stays between 2009 and 2019. Results hospital-acquired adverse events, or conditions, were observed within 10091 hospitalizations. After private equity acquisition, Medicare beneficiaries admitted to private equity hospitals experienced a 25.4% increase in hospital-acquired conditions compared with those treated at control hospitals, 4.6, 95% C, 2.0 to 7.2, Additional hospital-acquired conditions per 10,000 hospitalizations, P equals 0.004. This increase in hospital-acquired conditions was driven by a 27.3% increase in falls, P equals 0.02, and a 37.7% increase in central line-associated bloodstream infections, P equals 0.04, at private equity hospitals, despite placing 16.2% fewer central lines. Surgical site infections doubled from 10.8 to 21.6 per 10,000 hospitalizations at private equity hospitals despite an 8.1% reduction in surgical volume. Meanwhile, such infections decreased at control hospitals, though statistical precision of the between-group comparison was limited by the smaller sample size of surgical hospitalizations. 
Compared with Medicare beneficiaries treated at control hospitals, those treated at private equity hospitals were modestly younger, less likely to be duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, and more often transferred to other acute care hospitals after shorter lengths of stay. In hospital mortality, N equals 162-652 in the population or 3.4% on average, decreased slightly at private equity hospitals compared with the control hospitals, there was no differential change in mortality by 30 days after hospital discharge. Conclusions and relevance Private equity acquisition was associated with increased hospital-acquired adverse events, including falls and central line-associated bloodstream infections, along with a larger but less statistically precise increase in surgical site infections. Shifts in patient mix toward younger and fewer duly eligible beneficiaries admitted and increased transfers to other hospitals may explain the small decrease in in in-hospital mortality at private equity hospitals relative to the control hospitals, which was no longer evident 30 days after discharge. These findings heighten concerns about the implications of private equity on health care delivery. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Effective Complementary Interventions to Redesign Care on Teamwork and Quality for Hospitalized Medical Patients. A Pragmatic Controlled Trial. Background. Multiple challenges impede interprofessional teamwork and the provision of high-quality care to hospitalized patients. Objective. To evaluate the effect of interventions to redesign hospital care delivery on teamwork and patient outcomes. Design. Pragmatic Controlled Trial. Hospitals selected one unit for implementation of interventions and a second to serve as a control. Clinicaltrials.gov, NCT 0374567 setting. Medical units at four U.S. hospitals. Participants. Healthcare professionals and hospitalized medical patients. Intervention. Mentored implementation of unit-based physician teams, unit nurse-physician co-leadership, enhanced interprofessional rounds, unit-level performance reports, and patient engagement activities. Measurements Primary outcomes were teamwork climate among healthcare professionals and adverse events experienced by patients. Secondary outcomes were length of stay, LOS, 30-day readmissions, and patient experience. Difference in differences, DID, Analyses of patient outcomes compared intervention versus control units before and after implementation of interventions. Results. Among 155 professionals who completed pre- and post-intervention surveys, the median teamwork climate score was higher after than before the intervention only for nurses, and equals 77, median score, 88.0, IQR, 77.0 to 91.0, versus 80.0, IQR, 70.0 to 89.0, P equals 0.022. Among 3,773 patients, a greater percentage had at least one adverse event after compared with before the intervention on control units, change 1.61 percentage points, 95% C, 0.01 to 3.22 percentage points. A similar percentage of patients had at least one adverse event after compared with before the intervention on intervention units, change, 0.43 percentage point, C, minus 1.25 to 2.12 percentage points. A DID analysis of adverse events did not show a significant difference in change, adjusted DID, minus 0.92 percentage point, C, 
minus 2.49 to 0.64 percentage point, P equals 0.25. Similarly, there were no differences in loss, readmissions, or patient experience. Limitation Adverse events occurred less frequently than anticipated, limiting statistical power. Conclusion Despite improved teamwork climate among nurses, interventions to redesign care for hospitalized patients were not associated with improved patient outcomes. Next article from Nature Medicine The infant gut virome is associated with preschool asthma risk independently of bacteria. In 2020, the World Health Organization, WHO, launched a strategy to eliminate cervical cancer as a public health problem. To support the strategy, the WHO published updated cervical screening guidelines in 2021. To inform this update, we used an established modeling platform, Policy One Cervix, to evaluate the impact of seven primary screening scenarios across 78 low- and lower-middle-income countries, LUMICS, for the general population of women. Assuming 70% coverage, we found that primary human papillomavirus, HPV, screening approaches were the most effective and cost-effective, reducing cervical cancer age-standardized mortality rates by 63-67% to when offered every five years. Strategies involving triaging women before treatment, with 16-18 genotyping, cytology, visual inspection with acetic acid, BIA or colposcopy, had close to similar effectiveness to HPV screening without triage and fewer precancer treatments. Screening with VIA or cytology every three years was less effective and less cost-effective than HPV screening every five years. Furthermore, VIA generated more than double the number of precancer treatments compared to HPV. In conclusion, Primary HPV screening is the most effective, cost-effective and efficient cervical screening option in LICS. These findings have directly informed WHO's updated cervical screening guidelines for the general population of women, which recommend primary HPV screening in a screen-and-treat or screen-triage and treat approach, starting from age 30 years with screening every 5 years or 10 years. Next article from Lancet. Treatment of severe symptomatic aortic valve stenosis using non-invasive ultrasound therapy, a cohort study. Background. Calcific aortic stenosis is commonly treated using surgical or transcatheter aortic valve replacement. However, many patients are not considered suitable candidates for these interventions due to severe comorbidities and limited life expectancy. As such, non-invasive therapies might offer alternative therapeutic possibilities in these patients. This study aimed to assess the safety of non-invasive ultrasound therapy and its ability to improve valvular function by softening calcified valve tissue. Methods This perspective, multi-center, single-arm series enrolled 40 adult patients with severe symptomatic aortic valve stenosis at three hospitals in France, the Netherlands, and Serbia between March 13, 2019 and May 8, 2022. Patients were treated with transthoracically delivered non-invasive ultrasound therapy. Follow-ups were scheduled at 1, 3, 6, 12, and 24 months. The primary endpoints were procedure-related deaths within 30 days and improved valve function. We report the six-month data. This study is registered at clinicaltrials.gov, 
NCT 0377962 and NCT 04665596. Findings 40 high-risk patients with a mean society of thoracic surgeon score of 5 middle.6%, SD4 middle.4, and multiple severe comorbidities were included. The primary endpoint, procedure-related mortality, did not occur. Furthermore, no life-threatening or cerebrovascular events were reported. Improved valve function was confirmed up to 6 months, reflected by a 10% increase in mean aortic valve area from 0 middle.58 square centimeters, SD0 middle.19, at baseline to 0 middle.64 square centimeters, 0 middle.21, at follow-up, P equals 0 middle.0088, and a 7% decrease in mean pressure gradient from 41 middle.9 millimeters Hg, 20 middle.1, to 38 middle.8 millimeters Hg, 17 middle.8, P equals 0 middle.024. At 6 months, the New York Heart Association score had improved or stabilized in 24, 96% of 25 patients, and the mean Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire score had improved by 33%, from 48 middle.5, SD22 middle.6, to 64 middle.5, 21 middle.0. One serious procedure-related adverse event occurred in a patient who presented with a transient decrease in peripheral oxygen saturation. Non-serious adverse events included pain, discomfort during treatment, and transient arrhythmias. Interpretation This novel, non-invasive ultrasound therapy for calcified aortic stenosis proved to be safe and feasible. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Health-related quality of life with nivolumab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy in patients with advanced gastric-slash-gastroesophageal junction cancer or esophageal adenocarcinoma from Checkmate 649. In Checkmate 649, first-line nivolumab plus chemotherapy prolonged overall survival versus chemotherapy in patients with advanced-slash-metastatic non-human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, Per 2 positive gastric slash gastroesophageal junction cancer, GC slash or esophageal adenocarcinoma, EAC. We present exploratory patient reported outcomes, pros. Methods. In patients, N equals 1581, concurrently randomly assigned 1 to 1 to nivolumab plus chemotherapy or chemotherapy and in those with tumor PDL1 expression at a combined positive score, CPS, of greater than or equal to 5. Health-related quality of life, her call, was assessed using the EQ5D and Functional Assessment of Cancer Therapy Gastric, FACTGA, which included the FACT-General, FACT-G, and Gastric Cancer Subscale, GACS. The FACT-GGP5-item assessed treatment-related symptom burden. Longitudinal changes in her call were assessed using mixed models for repeated measures in the pro-analysis population, randomly assigned patients with baseline and greater than or equal to one post-baseline assessments. Time to symptom or definitive deterioration analyzes were also conducted. Results In the pro-analysis population, N equals 1,360, pro-questionnaire completion rates were mostly greater than 80% during treatment. Patient-reported symptom burden was not increased with nivolumab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy. Mean-improved changes from baseline were greater with nivolumab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy for FACGA total, GAS-CS, 
An EQ5D visual analog scale in patients with a CPS of greater than or equal to 5, results were similar for the overall pro-analysis population. In CPS greater than or equal to 5 in all randomly assigned populations, nivolumab plus chemotherapy reduced the risk of symptom deterioration versus chemotherapy, on the basis of FACGOT total score and GAS-CS, time to definitive deterioration was longer, and the risk of definitive deterioration in her call was reduced with nivolumab plus chemotherapy across EQ5D and most FACGOT measures, hazard ratio, 95% C, less than 1. Conclusion Compared with chemotherapy alone, first-line nivolumab plus chemotherapy showed stable or better on treatment her call in patients with advanced-slash-metastatic non-HER2-positive GC-slash-slash-EEC and also showed decreased risk of definitive her call deterioration. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. Familial coaggregation of mosled with hepatocellular carcinoma and adverse liver outcomes, nationwide multi-generational cohort study. Background and aims. Metabolic dysfunction associated steatotic liver disease, mosled, formerly NAFLD, is the fastest growing cause of hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, worldwide. However, whether family members of individuals with mosled also share an increased risk of developing HCC is unknown. Methods This nationwide multi-generational cohort study involved family members of all Swedish adults diagnosed with biopsy-proven mosled, 1969-2017, and matched general population comparators. Using the Swedish Multi-Generation Register, we identified 38,018 first-degree relatives, FDRs, parents, siblings, offspring, and 9,381 spouses of patients with mosled, as well as 197,303 comparator FDRs and 47,572 comparator spouses. We used Cox proportional hazards models to calculate adjusted hazard ratios, Rs, for HCC, major adverse liver outcomes, cirrhosis, decompensated liver disease or liver transplantation, liver-related mortality, extrahepatic cancer, and non-liver-related mortality. Results Over a median of 17.6 years, the rate of the primary outcome HCC was higher in mosled FDRs versus comparator FDRs, 13 versus 8 100 thousandths person years, high, R1.80, 95% C1.36 minus 2.37. The HCC risk was further increased in FDRs of individuals with liver fibrosis slash cirrhosis, R2.14, 95% C1.07 minus 4.27, heterogeneity equals 0.03. Mosled FDRs also had higher rates of major adverse liver outcomes, 73 versus 51 100 thousandths pi, R1.52, 95% C1.36 minus 1.69, and liver-related mortality, 20 versus 11 100 thousandths pi, R2.14, 95% C1.67 minus 2.74. Mosled FDRs with any concomitant chronic liver condition experienced accelerated progression of liver disease, R1.47, 95% C1.29 to 1.67. Mosled spouses were at higher risks of major adverse liver outcomes, 86 versus 74 100 thousandths pi, R1.23, 95% C1.01-1.51, and liver-related mortality, 
25 versus 19 100 thousandths pi, R1.93, 95% C1.15 minus 3.23, but not of HCC, R1.43, 95% C0.87 minus 2.35. Conclusions There is distinct familial clustering of adverse liver-related outcomes in families of individuals with biopsy-proven muscle, with higher relative risks of HCC, progressive liver disease, and liver-related mortality, but absolute risks are low. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology Recent Trends in the Incidence of Gastric Cancer in the United States Background Gastric cancer, GC, incidence rates overall in the United States have declined over recent decades and are predicted to continue declining. However, there have been mixed recent findings regarding the potential stabilization of rates and potential divergent trends by age group. We used the most recent cancer data for the United States and examined trends in GC between 1992 and 2019 overall and in important subgroups of the population. Methods Age-adjusted GC incidence rates and trends in adults 20 years or older were calculated using data from the Surveillance, Epidemiology and End Results, SEER, 12 program. Secular trends were examined overall and by age group, sex, race-slash-ethnicity, SEER registry, and tumor location. We use joint point regression to compute annual percent changes, average annual percent changes, and associated 95% C. Results GC rates decreased by 1.23% annually from 1992 to 2019. Despite overall decreases, GC incidence rates increased for age groups below 50 years, predominantly driven by non-cardia GC, 74.3% of all GCs. Cardia GC, 26.7% of GC, rates decreased in all age groups except for 80 to 84 years. Overall GC rates decreased for both sexes, all races, and for all SEER registry regions, with the largest decreases occurring in males, Asians and Pacific Islanders, and in Hawaii. Age period cohort analysis revealed that birth cohorts before 1940 and after 1980 both had increased rates of GC compared with the reference birth cohort of 1955. Conclusion GC rates overall have continued to decline through 2019, despite increases in the rate of noncardia GC for younger age groups. Defecation symptoms in relation to stool consistency significantly reflect the dyssynergic pattern in high-resolution anorectal manometry in constipated patients. Background DRC is an important subgroup of chronic constipation that benefits from biofeedback treatment. Diagnosis of DRC requires a dyssynergic pattern, DP, of attempted defecation in high-resolution anorectal manometry, HRAM, and at least one other positive standardized examination such as the balloon expulsion test or defecography. However, REM is generally limited to tertiary gastroenterology centers and finding tools for selecting patients for referral for further investigations would be of clinical value. Study Retrospective data from REM and a two-week patient completed bowel habit and symptom diary from 99 chronically constipated patients were analyzed. Results 57% of the patients had a DP pattern during REM. In the DP group, 
76% of bowel movements with loose or normal stool resulted in a sense of incomplete evacuation compared with 55% of the non-DP group, P equals 0.004. Straining and sensation of incomplete evacuation with the loose stool were significantly more common in the DP group, P equals 0.032. Hard stool was a discriminator for non-DP, P equals 0.044. Multiple logistic regression including incomplete evacuation and normal stool predicted DP with a sensitivity of 82% and a specificity of 50%. Conclusions The sensation of incomplete evacuation with loose or normal stool could be a potential discriminator in favor of DP in chronically constipated patients. The bowel habit and symptom diary may be a useful tool for stratifying constipated patients for further investigation of suspected DRC. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases. Oral lipid nanocrystal amphotericin B for cryptococcal meningitis, a randomized clinical trial. Background. Amphotericin B is the gold standard treatment for severe mycoses. A new orally delivered, less toxic formulation of amphotericin has been developed. Methods. In our randomized clinical trial, we tested oral lipid nanocrystal, LNC, amphotericin B, MAT-2203, Matinus Biopharma, versus Intravenous, 4, Amphotericin for Human Immunodeficiency Virus-Associated Cryptococcal Meningitis in 4 Sequential Cohorts. Two pilot cohorts assessed safety and tolerability, and equals 10 each, and two cohorts assessed efficacy with slash without two 4 loading doses, and equals 40 each. The experimental arm received 1.8 g/d oral LNC amphotericin through 2 weeks with 100 mg/kg/d flucytosine, then 1.2 g/d LNC amphotericin through 6 weeks. The randomized control arm, n equals 41, received 7 days of 4 amphotericin with flucytosine, then 7 days of fluconazole 1200 mg/d. The primary endpoint was cerebrospinal fluid (CSF) early fungicidal activity, EFA. Results. We randomized 80 participants to oral LNC amphotericin plus flucytosine with, N equals 40, and without, N equals 40, two four loading doses and 41 control participants to 4 amphotericin plus flucytosine. Mean EFA was 0.40 log 10 colony forming units, CFU per milliliter slash D for all oral LNC amphotericin, 0.42 log 10 cryptococcus CFU per milliliter slash D for oral LNC amphotericin with 4 loading doses, and 0.46 log 10 CFU per milliliter slash D for 4 amphotericin controls. LNC amphotericin groups achieved 2-week CSF sterility in 63%, 44 of 70, versus 68%, 23 of 34, of controls. The 18-week survival was 85%, 34 of 40, with all oral LNC amphotericin, 90%, 36 of 40, with oral LNC amphotericin given 4 loading doses, and 85%, 35 of 41, with 4 amphotericin. Grade 3 to 4 laboratory adverse events occurred less frequently in LNC amphotericin groups, 41%, than the 4th amphotericin group, 61%, P equals 0.05 particularly for anemia, 21% versus 44%, P equals 0.01, and potassium, 
5% versus 17%, P equals 0.04. Conclusions This new oral amphotericin B LNC formulation appears promising for cryptococcal meningitis with antifungal activity, similar survival, and less toxicity than for amphotericin. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis with liver fibrosis as predictors of new onset diabetes mellitus in people with HIV, a longitudinal cohort study. Background We investigated the association between non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, plus or minus a concurrent diagnosis of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, and incident diabetes mellitus, DM, and the risk factors associated with NAFLD or NASH development. Methods In this prospective study, we analyzed people with human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, PWH, H greater than or equal to 18 years without excessive alcohol consumption or hepatitis co-infections. NAFLD was defined as controlled attenuation parameter greater than or equal to 248 dB m whereas NASH with significant disease activity and liver fibrosis was defined as a fibroscan AST score greater than or equal to 0.67. Cox proportional hazard regression was used to investigate the association between NAFLD with or without NASH and new onset DM. Results Of 847 PWH, the median age at baseline was 45 years, interquartile range, 38 to 51, 43% female. Baseline NAFLD was associated with 2.8-fold higher risk of new-onset DM after adjusting for age, sex, family history of DM, antiretroviral therapy duration, smoking, statin use, stavidine-slash-didanosine-slash-sidovidine exposure, time-updated body mass index, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. Combined NAFLD and NASH at baseline had 3.1-fold higher new-onset DM risk. In separate analyzes, Baseline DM did not predict progression to NAFLD or NASH, but tenofovir alafenamide use was associated with an increased risk of NAFLD, hazard ratio, HR, 2.01, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.02 to 4.02, or NASH development, 2.31, 95% C, 1.12 to 5.11. Conclusions NAFLD alone or combined with NASH strongly predicts new onset DM. This highlights the need for systematic risk assessments and management of NAFLD-slash-NASH, as it may contribute to metabolic complications such as DM and subsequent cardiovascular diseases in PWH. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology Evaluation of Gastrointestinal System Complaints and Comorbidities in Pediatric Familial Mediterranean Fever Patients Objective Familial Mediterranean Fever, FMF, is the most prevalent hereditary autoinflammatory disease among children. Abdominal pain and various gastrointestinal system, GIS, manifestations may arise directly from FMF or concomitantly with FMF. This study aimed to evaluate GIS complaints and findings other than classic peritonitis attacks in patients with FMF and to interpret concomitant GIS and hepatic disorders in these patients. Methods 
The medical and genetic findings of patients with FMF who attended our clinic between December 2011 and December 2021 were reviewed. Gastrointestinal system symptoms, liver function tests, abdominal images, and endoscopic and histopathological data were extracted from medical records. Results A total of 576 pediatric patients, female, 52.3%, diagnosed with FMF were included. Among them, almost one-fifth displayed GIS complaints, such as abdominal pain, defecation problems, and dyspepsia, distinct from typical FMF attacks. High serum aminotransferase levels were detected in 18.4% of the patients, with viral infections being the most common cause of moderate-slash-severe hypertransaminosemia. In addition, during follow-up, 26.9% of them were referred to the Pediatric Gastroenterology Department. At least one gastroenterological and hepatobiliary disorder was detected in 17.5% of the patients because of organic and functional GIS disorders or hepatobiliary disorders, such as gastroesophageal reflux disease, esophagitis, functional dyspepsia, and inflammatory bowel diseases. Conclusion Various GIS and hepatic disorders can be encountered in children with FMF. The spectrum of these complaints and pathologies can range from frequently observed health problems to more severe diseases. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology Association between severe non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine and systemic lupus erythematosus flares, damage, and mortality in 660 patients from the SLIC inception cohort. Objective The goals of this study were to assess the associations of severe non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine, HCQ, objectively assessed by HCQ serum levels, and risks of systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE, flares, damage, and mortality rates over five years of follow-up. Methods The Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinics, SLIC Inception Cohort is an international multi-center initiative, 33 centers throughout 11 countries. The serum of patients prescribed HCQ for at least three months at enrollment were analyzed. Severe non-adherence was defined by a serum HCQ level less than 106 nanograms per milliliter or less than 53 nanograms per milliliter for HCQ doses of 400 or 200 milligrams slash day, respectively. Associations with the risk of a flare, defined as a systemic lupus erythematosus disease activity index 2000 increase greater than or equal to 4 points, initiation of prednisone or immunosuppressive drugs, or new renal involvement were studied with logistic regression, and associations with damage, first slick slash American College of Rheumatology Damage Index, SDI increase greater than or equal to one point, and mortality with separate Cox proportional hazard models. Results Of the 1,849 cohort participants, 660 patients, 88% women, were included. Median, interquartile range, Serum HCQ was 388 nanograms per milliliter, 244 to 566, 48 patients, 7.3%, had severe HCQ non-adherence. No covariates were clearly associated with severe non-adherence, which was, however, independently associated with both flare, odds ratio 3.38, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.80 to 6.42, and an increase in the SDI within each of the first three years, hazard ratio, HR, 
1.92 at 3 years, 95% C1.05 to 3.50. 11 patients died within 5 years, including 3 with severe non-adherence, crude HR 5.41, 95% C1.43 to 20.39. Conclusion Severe non-adherence was independently associated with the risks of an SLE flare in the following year, early damage, and 5-year mortality. Next article from Circulation. Polycystic ovary syndrome fuels cardiovascular inflammation and aggravates ischemic cardiac injury. Background. Reducing cardiovascular disease burden among women remains challenging. Epidemiologic studies have indicated that polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, the most common endocrine disease in women of reproductive age, is associated with an increased prevalence and extent of coronary artery disease. However, the mechanism through which PCOS affects cardiac health in women remains unclear. Methods Prenatal anti-mullerian hormone treatment or parapubertal letrozole infusion was used to establish mouse models of PCOS. RNA sequencing was performed to determine global transcriptomic changes in the hearts of PCOS mice. Flow cytometry and immunofluorescence staining were performed to detect myocardial macrophage accumulation in multiple PCOS models. Parabiosis models, cell tracking experiments, and in vivo gene silencing approaches were used to explore the mechanisms underlying increased macrophage infiltration in PCOS mouse hearts. Permanent coronary ligation was performed to establish myocardial infarction knee. Histologic analysis and small animal imaging modalities, e.g., magnetic resonance imaging and echocardiography, were performed to evaluate the effects of PCOS on injury after me. Women with PCOS and control participants, N equals 200, were recruited to confirm findings observed in animal models. Results Transcriptomic profiling and immunostaining revealed that hearts from PCOS mice were characterized by increased macrophage accumulation. Parabiosis studies revealed that monocyte-derived macrophages were significantly increased in the hearts of PCOS mice because of enhanced circulating Li6C plus monocyte supply. Compared with control mice, PCOS mice showed a significant increase in splenic Li6C plus monocyte output, associated with elevated hematopoietic progenitors in the spleen and sympathetic tone. Plasma norepinephrine, a sympathetic neurotransmitter, levels and spleen size were consistently increased in women with PCOS when compared with those in control participants, and norepinephrine levels were significantly correlated with circulating CD14 plus C.D. 16 minus monocyte counts. Compared with animals without PCOS, PCOS animals showed significantly exacerbated atherosclerotic plaque development and postmecardiac remodeling. Conditional VCAM1 silencing in PCOS mice significantly suppressed cardiac inflammation and improved cardiac injury after me. Conclusions Our data documented previously unrecognized mechanisms through which PCOS could affect cardiovascular health in women. PCOS may promote myocardial macrophage accumulation and postmecardiac remodeling because of augmented splenic myelopoiesis. Next article from American College of Cardiology Role of Polyunsaturated Fat in Modifying CVD Risk Study Questions 
Does dietary intake of polyunsaturated fats, PUFAs, modify the cardiovascular disease, CVD, risk associated with a family history of CVD? Methods The authors of Fatty Acids and Outcomes Research Consortium, FORCE, a scientific collaboration effort whose aim is to investigate the relationship between fatty acids and several chronic diseases, pooled their 15 observational studies to assess interactions between biomarkers of low PUFA intake and a family history in relation to long-term CVD risk in a large consortium of subjects. Blood and tissue PUFA data from 40,885 CVD-free adults were assessed. PUFA levels less than or equal to 25th percentile were considered to reflect low intake of linolenic, alpha-linolenic, and icosapentaenoic-slash-docosahexaenoic acids, EPA-slash-DHA. Family history was defined as having greater than or equal to one first-degree relative who experienced a CVD event. Relative risks with 95% confidence interval, C, of CVD were estimated using Cox regression and meta-analyzed. Interactions were assessed by analyzing product terms and calculating relative excess risk due to interaction. Results After multivariable adjustments, a significant interaction between low EPA-DHA and family history was observed, product term pooled, relative risk 1.09, 95% C, 1.02 to 1.16, P equals 0.01. The pooled relative risk of CVD associated with the combined exposure to low EPA-DHA and family history was 1.41, 95% C, 1.30 to 1.54, whereas it was 1.25, 95% C, 1.16 to 1.33, for family history alone and 1.06, 95% C, 0.98 to 1.14, for EPA-DHA alone compared with those with neither exposure. The relative excess risk due to interaction results indicated no interactions. Conclusions A significant interaction between biomarkers of low EPA-DHA intake, but not the other PUFA, and a family history was observed. This novel finding might suggest a need to emphasize the benefit of consuming oily fish for individuals with a family history of CVD. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Association of Lipoproteina Levels with Myocardial Fibrosis in the Multiethnic Study of Atherosclerosis Background Lipoprotein A, LPA, has been identified as an emerging risk factor for adverse cardiovascular, CV, outcomes, including heart failure. However, the connections among LPA, myocardial fibrosis, interstitial and replacement, and cardiac remodeling as pathways to CV diseases remains unclear. Objectives This study investigated the relationship between LPA levels and myocardial fibrosis by cardiac magnetic resonance, CMR, T1 mapping and late gadolinium enhancement, as well as cardiac remodeling by CINE-CMR in the MESA, multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, cohort. Methods the study included 2,040 participants with baseline LPA measurements and T1 mapping for interstitial myocardial fibrosis, IMF, evaluation in 2010. LPA was analyzed as a continuous variable, per log unit, and using clinical cutoff values of 30 and 50 mg dl. 
multivariate linear and logistic regression were used to assess the associations of LPA with CMR measures of extracellular volume, ECV fraction, ECV percent, native T1 time, and myocardial scar, as well as parameters of cardiac remodeling, in 2,826 participants. Results Higher LPA levels were associated with increased ECV percent, per log unit LPA, beta equals 0.2%, P equals 0.007, and native T1 time, per log unit LPA, beta equals 4%, P less than 0.001. Similar relationships were observed between elevated LPA levels and a higher risk of clinically significant IMF defined by prognostic thresholds per log unit LPA of ECV percent, or, 1.20, 95% C. 1.04 to 1.43, and native T1, or, 1.2, 95% C, 1.1 to 1.4, equal to 30%, and 955 milliseconds, respectively. Clinically used LPA cutoffs, 30 and 50 mg DL, were associated with greater prevalence of myocardial scar, or, 1.85, 95% C, 1.1 to 3.2 and or, 1.9. 95% C, 1.1 to 3.4, respectively. Finally, higher LPA levels were associated with left atrial enlargement and dysfunction. Conclusions Elevated LPA levels are linked to greater subclinical IMF, increased myocardial scar prevalence, and left atrial remodeling. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Association of Body Mass Index and Its Change with Incident Diabetes Mellitus. Context. There have been insufficient data on the threshold of body mass index, BMI, for developing diabetes mellitus, DM, and the relationship between change in BMI and the subsequent risk of DM. Objective. We sought to clarify the association of BMI and its change with incident DM. Methods. We conducted a retrospective observational cohort study using the JMDC claims database between 2005 and 2021. We included 3400-303 individuals without a prior history of DM or usage of glucose-lowering medications. The median age was 44 years and 57.5% were men. We categorized the study participants into four groups, underweight, BMI less than 18.5 kg M2, normal weight, BMI 18.5 to 24.9 kg M2, overweight, BMI 25.0 to 29.9 kg M2, and obese, BMI greater than or equal to 30 kg M2. According to the change in BMI from the initial health checkup to the health checkup one year after that, we divided the study participants into three groups less than or equal to minus 5.0%, minus 5.0% to plus 5.0%, and greater than or equal to plus 5.0%. Results The risk of developing DM increased steeply after BMI exceeded approximately 20 to 21 kg M2. Compared with participants with stable BMI, minus 5.0% to plus 5.0%, the relative risk for DM among those whose BMI had increased by 5.0% or more was 1.33, 95% C1.31 to 1.36. In contrast, 
The relative risk for DM among those whose BMI decreased by 5.0% or more was 0.82, 95% C0.80 to 0.84. Moreover, people classified as normal weight, overweight, and obese reduced the risk of developing DM when they reduced their BMI, whereas the risk of developing DM for people classified as underweight increased when they reduced their BMI. Conclusion Our findings offer novel insights into improving an optimal bodyweight management strategy to prevent the development of DM. The presence and severity of NAFLD are associated with cognitive impairment and hippocampal damage. Objective This study aimed to investigate the association of liver pathological changes with cognitive features and further explore the underlying brain manifestations. Methods in patients We performed a cross-sectional study in 320 subjects who underwent liver biopsy. Among the enrolled participants, 225 underwent assessments of global cognition and cognitive subdomains. Furthermore, 70 individuals received functional magnetic resonance imaging scans for neuroimaging evaluations. The associations among liver histological features, brain alterations, and cognitive functions were evaluated using structural equation model. Results Compared with controls, patients with NAFLD had poorer immediate memory and delayed memory. Severe liver stetosis, odds ratio, 2.189, 95% C, 1.020 to 4.699, and ballooning or 3.655, 95% C, 1.419 to 9.414, were related to a higher proportion of memory impairment. Structural magnetic resonance imaging showed that patients with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis exhibited volume loss in left hippocampus and its subregions of subiculum and presubiculum. Task-based magnetic resonance imaging showed that patients with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis had decreased left hippocampal activation. Path analysis demonstrated that higher NAFLD activity scores were associated with lower subiculum volume and reduced hippocampal activation, and such hippocampal damage contributed to lower delayed memory scores. Conclusions We are the first to report the presence and severity of NAFLD to be associated with an increased risk of memory impairment and hippocampal structural and functional abnormalities. These findings stress the significance of early cognitive evaluation in patients with NAFLD. Next article from Neurology Clinical Associations and Prognostic Value of MRI Visible Paravascular Spaces in Patients with Ischemic Stroke or TIA, a Pooled Analysis Background and Objectives Visible paravascular spaces are an MRI marker of cerebral small vessel disease and might predict future stroke. However, results from existing studies vary. We aim to clarify this through a large collaborative multi-center analysis. Methods We pooled individual patient data from a consortium of prospective cohort studies. Participants had recent ischemic stroke or transient ischemic attack, TIA, underwent baseline MRI and were followed up for ischemic stroke and symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, ICH. Paravascular spaces in the basal ganglia, BGPVS, and paravascular spaces in the centrum semiovale, CSOPS, were rated locally using a validated visual scale. 
We investigated clinical and radiologic associations cross-sectionally using multinomial logistic regression and prospective associations with ischemic stroke and ICH using Cox regression. Results We included 7,778 participants, mean age 70.6 years, 42.7% female from 16 studies, followed up for a median of 1.44 years. 80 ICH and 424 ischemic strokes occurred. BGPVS were associated with increasing age, hypertension, previous ischemic stroke, previous ICH, lacunes, cerebral microbleeds, and white matter hyperintensities. CSOPs showed consistently weaker associations. Prospectively, after adjusting for potential confounders including cerebral microbleeds, increasing BGPVS burden was independently associated with future ischemic stroke, versus 0 to 10 BGPVS. 11 to 20 BGPVS, HR 1.19, 95% C 0.93 to 1.53, 21 plus BGPVS, HR 1.50, 95% C 1.10 to 2.06, P equals 0.040. Higher BGPVS burden was associated with increased ICH risk in univariable analysis, but not in adjusted analyses. CSOPs were not significantly associated with either outcome. Discussion In patients with ischemic stroke or TIA, increasing BGPVS burden is associated with more severe cerebral small vessel disease and higher ischemic stroke risk. Neither BGPVS nor CSOPs were independently associated with future ICH. Next article from CHEST. Indicators of Neighborhood-Level Socioeconomic Position and Pediatric Critical Illness. Background. With recent prioritization of equity in pediatric health outcomes, a shift to examine neighborhood-level health care disparities within pediatric populations has occurred, specifically in the context of critical illness. Research question. Does an association exist between individual indicators of neighborhood-level disadvantage and incidence of PICU admission? Study design and methods. Pediatric patients younger than 18 years admitted to a PICU in a large urban tertiary pediatric hospital from January 1, 2016, through December 31, 2019, with a residential address in the city of Baltimore or Baltimore County on the day of admission were included in this ecological study. Demographic and clinical characteristics of children admitted to the PICU were summarized, with the primary outcome being PICU admission. Unadjusted negative binomial regression was used to examine the association between census tract level PICU admissions and the previously described census tract level indicators of neighborhood socioeconomic position. Regression models included an offset term for the population younger than 18 years for each census tract, results of models are reported as incidence rate ratios. IRRs, with corresponding 95% Cs. Results We identified 2,476 PICU admissions, 1,351 patients from the City of Baltimore, 10.25 per 1,000 children, and 1,125 patients from Baltimore County, 6.31 per 1,000 children. Most PICU admissions, N equals 906, 68%, for the city of Baltimore represented an area deprivation index, ADI, of greater than 60, whereas most Baltimore County PICU admissions, N equals 919, 82.3%, represented an ADI of less than 60.
At the neighborhood level, the percentage of families living below the poverty line was associated with greater incidence of PICU admission in the city of Baltimore, IRR, 1.09, 95% C, 1.00 to 1.18, and Baltimore County, IRR, 1.19, 95% C, 1.05 to 1.36. For every $10,000 increase in median household income, PICU admission rates dropped by 9% for the city of Baltimore, IRR, 0.91, 95% C, 0.86 to 0.95, and Baltimore County, IRR, 0.91, 95% C, 0.88 to 0.94. Neighborhoods with vacant housing units also were associated with a higher incidence of PICU admission in the city of Baltimore, IRR, 1.10, 95% C, 1.01 to 1.21, and Baltimore County, IRR, 1.46, 95% C, 1.21 to 1.77, as was a 10% increase in occupied homes without vehicles, City of Baltimore, IRR, 1.14, 95% C, 1.07 to 1.21, Baltimore County, IRR, 1.23, 95% C, 1.11 to 1.37. Interpretation Health outcomes of pediatric critical illness should be examined in the context of structural determinants of health, including neighborhood level and environmental characteristics. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine Early video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery or intrapleural enzyme therapy in pleural infection, a feasibility randomized controlled trial. The third multicenter intrapleural sepsis trial, MIST-3. Rationale, assessing the early use of video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, VATS, or intrapleural enzyme therapy, IET, in pleural infection requires a phase 3 randomized controlled trial, RCT. Objectives, to establish the feasibility of randomization in a surgery versus non-surgery trial as well as the key outcome measures that are important to identify relevant patient-centered outcomes in a subsequent RCT. Methods, the MIST-3, third multicenter intrapleural sepsis trial, was a prospective multicenter RCT involving eight UK centers combining on-site and off-site surgical services. The study enrolled all patients with a confirmed diagnosis of pleural infection and randomized those with ongoing pleural sepsis after an initial period, as long as 24H, of standard care to one of three treatment arms, continued standard care, early IAT, or a surgical opinion with regard to early VATS. The primary outcome was feasibility based on greater than 50% of eligible patients being successfully randomized, greater than 95% of randomized participants retained a discharge, and greater than 80% of randomized participants retained the two weeks of follow-up. The analysis was performed per intention to treat. Measurements and main results, of 97 eligible patients, 60-62% were randomized, with 100% retained the discharge and 84% retained the two weeks. Baseline demographic, clinical, and microbiological characteristics of the patients were similar across groups. Median times to intervention were 1.0 and 3.5 days in the IA and surgery groups, respectively, P equals 0.02. Despite the difference in time to intervention, length of stay, from randomization to discharge, was similar in both intervention arms, 7D, compared with standard care, 
10d, p equals 0.70. There were no significant intergroup differences in two-month readmission and further intervention, although the study was not adequately powered for this outcome. Compared with VATS, I demonstrated a larger improvement in mean Eurocall 5 Dimension Health Utility Index, 5-level edition, from baseline, 0.35, to 2 months, 0.83, p equals 0.023. One serious adverse event was reported in the VATS arm. Conclusions, this is the first multicenter RCT of early IAT versus early surgery in pleural infection. Despite the logistical challenges posed by the coronavirus disease, COVID-19, pandemic, the study met its predefined feasibility criteria, demonstrated potential shortening of length of stay with early surgery, and signals toward earlier resolution of pain and a shortened recovery with IAT. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Epidemiology of Gastric Malignancies 2000-2018 According to Histology, a population-based analysis of incidence and temporal trends. Background and aims. Gastric cancer, GC, remains a leading cause of cancer and cancer-related mortality. Recent reports suggest non-cardiac GC is increasing in certain U.S. populations. However, whether these trends are driven by gastric adenocarcinoma, GA, or other histologies, including neuroendocrine tumors, NETs, lymphoma, or gastrointestinal stromal tumors, GISTs, is unclear. Methods We analyzed the surveillance, epidemiology and end results 18 Cancer Registry, 2000-2018, to determine age standardized incidence rates, ASIR and annual percentage change, APC, trends for histologically confirmed GCs, stratified by anatomic location, non-cardia versus cardia, age group, 20 to 49 versus 50 plus years, sex, race, and ethnicity. Joint point regression modeling estimated the statistical significance of trend comparisons. Results Of 74,520 individuals with non-cardia GC, most, 66.2%, were GA, with the next largest categories being non-mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue, non-MALP, lymphomas, 6.9%, GIST, 6.7%, NET, 6.4%, and malt lymphoma, 5.6%. Noncardia GA ASIR was significantly higher than other histologies and demonstrated the greatest differences by race and ethnicity. APCs for GA and malt, both Helicobacter pylori-associated cancers, declined significantly over time, which was driven primarily by trends among individuals greater than or equal to 50 years old. Net and GIST APCs significantly increased irrespective of age group, with the highest APCs observed among non-Hispanic white individuals. Cardia GC was rarer than non-cardia GC and comprised primarily by GA, 87.9%. Cardia GC incidence fell during the study period, which was primarily driven by decline in cardia GA. Conclusions GA was the most common histology. On the basis of our findings, the rise in non-cardia GC among certain U.S. populations appears predominantly driven by NET and GIST, not GA. Further studies are needed to clarify underlying etiologies for these findings. (music) 
Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Vascular access-related distal ischemia requiring intervention, frequency, risk factors, and consequences. Background Distal ischemia is a rare complication in patients undergoing placement of an arteriovenous, AV, fistula or AV graft. There are limited studies on its frequency, risk factors, clinical consequences, or feasibility of subsequent access. Methods A prospective vascular access database from a large academic medical center was queried retrospectively to identify 1,498 patients, mean age 56 plus or minus 15 years, 48% female patients, 73% black patients, undergoing placement of at least one vascular access from 2011 to 2020. For patients who developed access-related distal ischemia requiring surgical intervention, we determined the frequency of distal ischemia, clinical risk factors, and subsequent outcomes. Results Severe access-related distal ischemia occurred in 28 patients, 1.9%, 95% confidence interval, 1.3% to 2.7%. The frequency was 0.2% for forearm AV fistulas, 0.9% for upper arm AV fistulas, 2.4% for forearm AV grafts, 2.2% for upper arm AV grafts, and 2.8% for thigh AV grafts. Risk factors independently associated with distal ischemia included female sex, odds ratio or 3.64, 95% confidence interval, 1.52 to 8.72, peripheral vascular disease or 6.28, 2.84 to 13.87, and coronary artery disease, or 2.37, 1.08 to 5.23. Surgical interventions included ligation, excision, plication, banding, and other surgical procedures. Five patients developed tissue necrosis. A subsequent AV graft was placed in 13 patients, of whom only one, 8%, developed distal ischemia requiring intervention. Conclusions Access-related distal ischemia requiring intervention was rare in this study and more common in women and patients with peripheral vascular disease or coronary artery disease. In some cases, a subsequent vascular access could be placed with a low likelihood of recurrent distal ischemia. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Contemporary Practice of Anemia Treatment Among Dialysis Patients in the United States Introduction The treatment of anemia is a major activity in the care of patients undergoing maintenance hemodialysis, HD. The comparative effectiveness of new pharmacologic treatments, relative to erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, ESAs, should be anticipated on the basis of controlled trials and current practice. We describe the contemporary practice of anemia treatment in a national cohort of patients undergoing maintenance HD. Methods We analyze the United States Renal Data System, USERDS, data to identify adult patients undergoing infacility HD in 2016-2019. Using the consolidated renal operations in a web-enabled network, CrownWeb dataset, we identified hemoglobin and ESA utilization, agent and cumulative dose, during each patient month, as well as intravenous, 4, iron utilization, ferritin, and transferrin saturation. We compared ESA dosing during the study era to dosing in the normal hematocrit cardiac trial, NHCT, conducted in the 1990s. 
We assessed ESA hyperresponsiveness by estimating the prevalence of the following, I, high erythropoietin resistance index, ERI, and, 2, either 3 or 6 consecutive months with hemoglobin less than 10 grams DL. Results. Nearly two-thirds of patient months had hemoglobin of 10.0 to 11.9 grams DL. Mean ESA utilization was 76.7% per month, with increasing use of pegylated epitin beta. ESA dosing was stable, epitin alpha dosing was slightly lower than in the low target arm of the NHCT. The prevalence of ESA hyperresponsiveness was 22.2% if defined by high ERI, but only 2.1% to 6.0% if defined by 3 to 6 consecutive months with hemoglobin less than 10 grams DL. Median transferrin saturation was 22.3% with high ERI and persistently low hemoglobin. Conclusion Hemoglobin and ESA dosing distributions are stable, with epitin alpha dosing below the low target arm of the NHCT. Persistently low hemoglobin occurs infrequently and may reflect iron depletion. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.